So we're in Psalm 19 today, and if someone asks you how they can get to know God better, and that's a realistic thing, that if someone came to you or one of your friends wanted to know more about God, the question is, how would you respond to them? Um, would you, you know, give them a book to read? Would you maybe invite them to church? Would you give them a podcast? Maybe tell them to check out the Bible Project on YouTube or, uh, you know, some podcast. Maybe you'd tell them to download through the Word Bible app or version or whatever your preferred um, app is on your, on your phone. What would you do if someone said, they, I want to know more about God? Maybe some of you have gone through the hub. You'd invite them to read the Word with you or you'd share your story with them. But the, that's the essence of the question, is how do we know what we know about God and how do we know more? How can we actually know God? You know, there's a fundamental claim in the Christian faith, and that claim is this, that the truth we embrace as Christians has come to us from God himself. I'm going to say it again. There's a fundamental claim in Christianity that the truth we embrace as Christians has come to us from God himself. And what that means is that Christianity, as opposed to other world religions or philosophical schools of thought, isn't just, you know, me and Mark sitting around and trying to guess what God is like and then drafting it into a book and trying to sell it. But instead, Christianity is about God revealing himself to us. And although we cannot see God with our eyes necessarily, we can know him by what the Bible calls, or what theologians call revelation. And revelation, I don't mean the book of revelation at the end of the Bible. I mean revelation as a term meaning making plain or unfolding that which is hidden. And so revelation is the idea of making plain that which is hidden. And so theologically, um, which is a, a fancy term for meaning studying God, and when we study God, we say that God reveals himself in two ways, primarily. Big, broad brushstrokes. He reveals himself in what's called general revelation, and he reveals himself in what's called special revelation. And in Psalm 19, what we're going to see today, Psalm 19 lays a foundation for what we mean by those two terms and how God reveals himself. And so there's actually three main things that we're learning in Psalm 19 First, we're going to learn about general revelation, and that's how God reveals himself. Are you going to guess? God reveals himself generally. We're really smart theologians, you know. God reveals himself generally to all through creation by what can be seen, what can be observed. But then special revelation is that God reveals himself intimately in a special way, primarily through his word. And then in the incarnate word, in, as we see in John chapter 1, in the God-man Jesus. And so we're going to learn about general revelation, about special revelation. And then the third thing Psalm 19 talks about is our response to these things, essentially to give God the worth that he is due. And so if you've already zoned out, okay, we're talking about revelation, not the book of revelation, but we're talking about the theological concept of revelation, which is how God has made himself known because we have this fundamental core idea in Christianity that the truth we have come to know is not us guessing about God, but it's about God revealing himself to mankind. 
Now, there's a sense in which all truth is dependent upon revelation. This was a concept that St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas both talked about in their writings as dead old guys. And they explained it in this way. This is an Augustine quote. We as creatures could not know anything were it not that God has made knowledge possible for us. Augustine's kind of compared this idea to seeing. And he said, you can go into a dark pitch black room and it could be filled with all kinds of beautiful works of art and it could be filled with people and it could be filled with all kinds of things. But if the room is not illuminated so that what is hidden is revealed, then you don't actually know what's there. And so the idea is that God in his ability or in his sovereignty and his power has given us the ability to uncover truth and then he reveals it to us. And so God reveals things to us and this allows us to learn and to know, to know the things of God, to know the things of self, to know the things of the world. Are you following me or are you you totally lost? Now the irony of this, by the way, is that I'm kind of getting to this before I wanted to, but the irony of this is that scientists will use what they can study in creation to disprove God, but the fact that they can study something that is orderly and consistent actually points to a creator who's intelligent. And so it actually becomes an ironic twist. All right, I'm going to read Psalm 19 again. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's the, the skies above. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And in them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens. Its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. This is general revelation. The idea here in these first couple of verses is that you can look up at creation. You can look at the sky. You can look at the stars, look at the sun. You can look at the intercoastal and the birds. You can look at, you know, the, the mechanics of the human eye. You can look at all of these things and they proclaim or declare the handiwork of God, which also declares the glory of God. That God reveals or unveils himself in all observable truth. We can look out on this beautiful backdrop. We can experience in some small way his glory. You know, the glory, glory is a hard word to define, but essentially glory is the beauty that emanates from God. And so we can look at something that is breathtaking, like the Grand Canyon, and there's a sense in which we experience glory, even though it's hard to identify and articulate what glory is. Now, general revelation um, really has two facets. We call it general revelation for two reasons, and those are, I want to identify those now. One, we call it general revelation because it's a general knowledge that is available to all people in the world, regardless of where they are born, regardless of what culture they call home, and regardless of all of the circumstances of their life. That God reveals himself generally to 100% of people everywhere. 
that even if you've never heard the name of Jesus, you have experienced his creation. This is what David means in Psalm 19.1 when he says the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. The idea is that what God has created proclaims who God is in a general way. The theologian R.C. Sproul put it this way, that anyone with physical vision can walk in the theater of nature and see the glory of God through the stars, the moon, the sun, and it is a grand theater. See, billions of people have never read the Bible, but all of them have experienced God's general revelation, that they can look at, the, at a volcano and they can say, this is wild, and it makes me feel small. It makes me feel humbled. I don't think I want to jump into it, right? And there is a capacity where they could say, something had to have made this. Something had to have been the architect behind all of this. So that's the first reason why it's called general revelation, because it is available generally to everybody. The second reason it's called general revelation is because it is also general. That looking at a waterfall may stir your heart. It may give you a sense of smallness and wonder. I forgot what those waterfalls are called in uh, Brazil. What are they called? Was it? Iguasa? Igua yeah. Well, you get it. All right. You can go uh, to Hawaii where, that, where the molten liquid hot magma is still going and it runs all the time and you can stand in, in awe of this, right? You can, you can go and, and go scuba diving and, and see that octopus that shape shifts and it looks like, goes from looking like a, like a crab to a lobster to a robot. I don't even know how it learned to look like a robot, but it can do it. And you can stand in wonder, and it can give you a sense of smallness. You know, one of the things that, um, that apologists have often talked about is the complexity of the human eye, that how quickly the eye processes imagery that we still don't have a computer that can process as quickly as the human eye processes colors and shapes and images and depth perception and focuses and all of these kinds of things. That you can look at this stuff and it can give you a sense of wonder that can lead you to intelligent design. General revelation, however, does not instruct you about the nature of sin, about the consequences of sin, about the need for spiritual redemption. It doesn't tell you anything of the cross of Christ. It doesn't point towards Jesus as the lone path of salvation, those are not included in general revelation. To learn those things, we need something that's not general. We need something that is special, something that is specific, which we're going to get to in a few moments. See, but because all people, now this is emphatic, because all people know God generally, the Bible makes the bold claim that people are therefore responsible for their knowledge of God, what they do with that knowledge or what they don't do with that knowledge. Now, what that means is what Paul explains. The Apostle Paul, he was a terrorist. He became a follower of Jesus. He used to kill Christians. Then he became one, and he writes this 
um, passage in Romans chapter 1, a, church, a letter he was writing to the church in Rome. And this is what he writes in Romans 1. He says, people suppress the truth, verse 19, because what can be known about God is plain to them. It's literally manifested or made clear. What can be known about God generally is clear to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. How has God shown it to them? With general revelation, okay? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, can be clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, would we all agree with that? And so this is the part we don't agree with. Then Paul says, therefore, they are without excuse. Because the sin in their heart has caused them to look at general revelation that proclaims that there is a creator, and instead of responding to it, we suppress it. And we see these same principles reiterated in Psalm 19, or more accurately stated, rooted in Psalm 19, that creation declares God's glory, it proclaims God's glory, that creation pours out speech without words, that creation, those words go out throughout all of the earth, and that it's visible from the smallest things to the most awe-inspiring that all of this displays a God who is creative, a God who is good, a God who provides, a God who is wise, a God who is orderly. Like I said, the very fact that we can study things using the scientific, scientific method to try to reproduce results points to the reality that God is a wise, orderly God. Because if he was a chaotic God, then nothing would happen twice, and it would always be a mess. So we see in Psalm 19 and in Romans 1 that God's eternal power and his deity are made clear through what he has made, but we suppress that knowledge because of sinful nature. Verse 7, the law of the Lord, now we transition from general revelation to special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord, those are, these are all synonyms, right? The law, testimony, precepts. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, or another way you could say that would be that the command to the the command to fear the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them is great reward. See, special revelation is different entirely from general revelation. It's still God in his goodness unveiling that which is hidden so that we can know truth. But unlike general revelation, special revelation, not everyone in the world has access to special revelation, 
which should bother us tremendously. That there's still many people who have no access to the word of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's easy for churches, especially today, as the progressive church increasingly makes us, not just the progressive church, if I'm honest, um, the, the politically wired church, progressive or conservative, it becomes increasingly concerned with nuances, right? Well, what about homelessness? What about uh, racial equity? What about whatever it might be? We, it's easy for us to get worked up about a poverty of finances, about a poverty of food, about a poverty of resources, about oppression of, of slave labor and child soldiers. And should we be upset about these things? Yes, we should be upset about all of these things. But even more tragic is the poverty of special revelation, a gospel poverty that isn't just problematic, it's cataclysmic eternally for those who are prey to it. That gospel poverty, special revelation poverty, is far more detrimental than growing up poor because one leads to a bad life and the other leads to eternal damnation. Because general revelation has no capacity to save you. General revelation only has capacity to damn you when you reject it. You need special revelation to learn about the redemptive plan of God. Special revelation is salvific, able to save. General revelation is not. So what does Psalm 19 teach us about special revelation well, what we see here is a, a kind of a pattern of what the word is and what the word does. First, he says the word is perfect. It revives the soul, or more literally, it preserves one's life. See, the law preserves the life of the one who studies it by making known to them the path so that they can walk on it. This is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures that God will reveal the path. It talks about this in Isaiah and in Psalm 119. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He talks about the narrow path and the broad path, right? And so the word of God is perfect. It preserves one's life because it shows you the way so that you can walk in it. I'm reminded of 2 Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3 that the word is able to make us wise for salvation. Why? So that our life can be preserved. So that our soul can actually come to life fully and finally, instead of being dead in our trespasses of sin, objects of wrath. He says the word is sure, making wise. The word is sure, making wise. The testimony is sure means that the teachings of God are reliable. If you think about it this way, if you are using a measuring rod or if you're using a level, you want to make sure that it is sure and true so that whatever you're measuring or whatever you're trying to get plumb will actually be straight or will actually be the right length. And so when it says that the testimony is sure, that's what it's, it means. It's saying that the, the testimony of God, the word of God is reliable for instruction as a plumb line for your life. And because of that, it makes the simpleton wise. 
by giving him counsel on how to live because the definition of wisdom is the application of knowledge. And so we have this sure and true word of God and when we apply it, it makes even the thickest of us wise for life. Can you imagine if God wasn't sure or if the word of God wasn't sure if God said, well, I know I wrote that, but that was like, I've evolved a lot. Can you imagine if God was like, I don't, I don't think that way anymore. That's not true anymore. It would be impossible to know actually what to do. Imagine if God was a postmodern God living in Portland. How confusing life would be. But he's not. He's sure and he's true and he's consistent. The word of God is right, which rejoices our heart. The teachings of the word are right. That means they are fair they are just. And this brings a sense of joy to our heart. It's like a bomb on a wound. Balm, not bomb, all right? Balm. Don't be distracted by my North Jersey. I think about the words of Romans. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Why? Because the word that they carry is fair and is right and is true. And the truth that is within the word brings joy to our hearts when our hearts actually finally come to life. The word of God is pure, enlightening the eyes. Enlightening the eyes, um, this is another parallel for the second thing, making wise. Enlightening the eyes means giving, giving wisdom or instruction for how to live. In other words, I'm watching my steps. That it's enlightening my eyes so I know the path. This is the path. I'm going to walk on the path. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This means that the commands to fear the Lord are right and they endure forever. That they don't shift. They don't change. It doesn't evolve like I just joked. It doesn't evolve as, as someone's ideas or philosophical approach does in the modern world. That even though the command to fear God may fly in the face of current culture and even church culture, people are like, well, you shouldn't fear God like God's your homeboy. I mean, we have that perspective, but the command to fear God is right. Because you would be afraid if we dangled you over a volcano, and God is far more awe-inspiring than that. The command to fear God is right, and it endures forever. And so even though it flies in the face of our culture, it is the right thing to do. The word of God is true and righteous. That God's commands accurately reflect God's morality. God's commands accurately reflect who he is. And so we can't just say, well, our culture is this now. And therefore, there's certain parts of scripture which are archaic and old and we toss them aside. No, the word of God is true and righteous. It reflects God's moral will for his people. It's an expression of his just character. And it's because of this reality that the word of God is true and righteous that we can look to the word of God and learn about our creator, that we have this special revelation in the word of God so that we can learn about his character, his qualities, his essence, his work. We don't have to guess who he is because in his true and righteous word, he has revealed himself to us. 
And for all of these reasons, the word is desirable. It's better than money. It's better than honey. I know that was a rhyme. I'm trying to be funny. <laughs> no more rhymes, and I mean it. Anybody want? <laughs> All right. Me and you, Patty. I'm glad Patty thinks I'm funny. These guys are booing. They're booing. This is the point. Those who follow the, the Lord, those who, when you think about the combination of all of these qualities of the Word of God, this leads us to an amazing reality about special revelation that those who follow the Lord as revealed in his word, not as revealed in culture, not as revealed in my philosophical musings, not as revealed in what I think God might be like, but those who follow the Lord as revealed in his word can anticipate great reward. They will steer away from that which is dangerous to their soul they will steer towards that which is life-giving to their soul. And the scriptures will ultimately bring them to the one who can save their soul. This is so much in just these few verses that it seems hard to summarize the benefits of the word, but thankfully Paul did it for us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says the sacred writings are able to make you wise for Faith, for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Because after all, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the word of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That means that the word leads you to salvation through faith in Jesus. And then the word is like a map or a GPS which shows you the right way shows you when you get off course, recalculates or redirects you back to your appropriate path and then helps you stay on the right path. Also that you are equipped for every good work because the word of God is able, is sure, able to make wise, simple people. And so we actually can know what to do and how to live. And what does this teach us about God's character? All of these things, what does this teach us about God's character? That he wants to be known. He wants to be known. He doesn't just want to be known generally. He wants to be known intimately. And that implies that he wants us to be saved so we can have this relationship with us. And he wants you to succeed at life as he defines it, not as our culture defines it. Then the psalmist ends with just three little thoughts. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. See, why do we need the word? We need the word because frankly, we don't even know ourselves. And that's what the psalmist is praying here. He's saying, who can even know it's like he's saying, how can I even know all the things that are wrong with me? And for those of you who are young, you're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. But for those of us who are aging, we're like, I get that. Because I feel like I'm always finding out things that I didn't know yesterday are wrong with me. Right? It's true. And so he's saying, please don't punish me for my ignorance. For those of you who are here during Leviticus, these are unintentional sins. 
We talked about this. This is the only type of sacrifice was for unintentional sins. See, the word reveals our desperate need for salvation. And when we come before the God who breathes out stars and speaks volcanoes into existence, how can we possibly hope to stand before him and articulate a clear defense? We're not going to. I don't even know the nuances of my own idiocy, let alone defend them with some word salad. So in light of general and special revelation, we see our need for salvation. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Those are high-handed sins, is what it is in the Hebrew, sins of intentional rebellion. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So the psalmist realizes he, he's, he's humbled before God. He also sees the danger of willful sin. That's what presumptuous sins are, sins of arrogance and rebellion. I'll put it this way. These are things that we know are wrong, but we're going to do them anyway, right? These are the sins, and don't act like you don't do this. These are the sins that you're thinking in your head, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it. I shouldn't, but I'm going to ask forgiveness in 10 minutes. You know you've done it. We've all done it. That is a presumptuous sin. The danger in those sins is that they numb us over time. And it starts with a little bit of compromise. And before you know it, you're so calloused, it no longer convicts your soul. And we build up a tolerance to sin the same way you build up a tolerance to everything else in your life. And so the psalmist, in light of God's revelation about God, about himself, about creation, he knows that that path, walking in antithesis to the pathway of the word, he knows it's a catastrophic path, and he says, I want freedom from it. Jesus put it this way, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So ultimately, what do we learn from Psalm 19? We learn that God reveals himself generally in his creation, in his work. We realize that God reveals himself specially and salvifically, that is a word, salvifically in his word. And we also see that as people who are steeped in sin, blatant sin, and hidden sin, we need to depend upon his merciful character and his salvation as revealed in the word of God and ultimately the incarnate word, Jesus, so that we can respond and give him his worth like we sang. See, disciples of Jesus encounter God in his created works and in his word so that we can acknowledge his worth and live and believe accordingly. So what does this mean for you tomorrow? Now, if you stood in front of the Grand Canyon, I want you to imagine how that would make you feel. If you stood at the threshold of a volcano, I don't mean like some baby volcano, I mean like Mount Doom, from Lord of the Rings, right? If, you're, if you picture yourself on a rowboat, no cell phone, 
just you by yourself on a peaceful lake in the middle of the lake. You picture yourself watching the most spectacular sunrise over there at Pittsburgh Ave, the most spectacular sunset over by the bay or right here. You picture yourself holding that newborn baby as he sleeps, reading the word with friends, understanding what it means together, singing the word in celebration and community. All that, or you could binge Netflix for six hours while shoveling pretzels in your mouth. You could speed walk through New York City holding a cup of Starbucks as you race to your next appointment. Or you could wait in line for three hours in Orlando to go on one ride. Which sounds more refreshing to your soul? Be honest. Do you realize how much we rely on junk food for our soul instead of the general and special revelation of God to nourish us? See, this is what I want you to understand. God has given you revelation, not just the Bible. God has given you general revelation and special revelation. He's given you creation. He's given you community. He's given you the word of God. He's given you prayer. He's given you the spirit of God. He's given us these things. Why? For your benefit and for his glory. For those of you who have recently gone through the hub, we talk about the five habits of disciples. And the first habit is abiding or dwelling, marinating, saturating, whatever you want to say, abiding in the, in the revelation of God, abiding in the word, abiding in prayer, abiding in the spiritual disciplines, not as a form of law, but because like it says in Psalm 19, that the word of God revives the soul. And so my challenge to you is this, this week intentionally enjoy the revelation of God intentionally enjoy the creation of God without putting it on Instagram. Park your phone. Intentionally enjoy the people of God. Intentionally enjoy the food that God has created, not the stuff that was created in a lab. Intentionally enjoy the word of God and praying to God, the spirit of God. Intentionally enjoy that which God has given as revelation, and I guarantee you, your soul will feel much more revived than if you decided you were going to relax with what we could call junk revelation. You guys following me? All right. It's 10.02. Perfect time to pray. Um, so we have a team going to New York City for, to go to a seed week. They're going to be prayer walking and sharing the gospel, being trained by our very own Christian Vance. And so if you're going to that, this, well, you're going today. If you're going today, would you come up front so we can pray for you guys? And can I get a couple of the elders to come up, please? All right, let's pray. Uh, Father God, we are so grateful for the opportunity that these, uh, these men and women have decided to give up their week to serve you, to go out to seek the lost to seek those who are in dispersion from their nations. Uh, Lord, as they go to Queens and they encounter so many people from all over the world who have left their peoples and their homes, 
but yet still have ties to them. Those people in homes have no access to your special revelation, like we talked about this morning. So, Lord, we just pray that this would be the door, that this would be the vessel, that these men and women right here, these brothers and sisters, would be the vessel that you would choose to reach the people at the ends of the earth, that your name would be great and glorified. We pray for their families that are left behind as they go, uh, Lord, that you would sustain and, and hold each of them with you. I pray, Lord, that there would just be uh, a block against any spiritual attacks that are going on, that they would uh, have an easy trip, that their preparations would be made easy. I pray, Father, that there, uh, any anxiety in them would just be quieted. Lord, that your peace that passes all understanding would come over each of them and just give them an excitement and a joy to see what you have. Lord, to walk in the good works that you have prepared for them before the foundations of the earth. Lord, we pray for each of them that they would be bold in proclaiming your word and quiet in their spirit, not nervous, but excited, that the joy of the Lord would be so heavy on them that it would be an attractiveness that people would actually come up to them rather than having to go up to each of the people. I pray that their hearts and their minds would be fertile ground for the teaching that Christian would share with them, and Lord, that your scripture would be written all over their hearts. Heavenly Father, I think of um, Paul preaching in Acts 17 when he says that, you know, since, since creation, you, a father, has been moving the nations and adjusting borders and bringing people closer to you. Lord, so that they can experience that general and that special revelation, Lord. And I thank you that we are so close to a place like New York City where so many nations are represented, Lord. And, uh, Lord, we know that you've brought them there for a reason. Lord, and we, um, we are so excited that for these ladies and gentlemen who are going up, Lord, um, as your word says, blessed are the feet that go and they take the gospel, Lord. So, Lord, we thank you that they, are, they have been prepared, they are willing. Um, Lord, we just pray for... Uh, as Dave prayed, just a protection over their family, Lord, as, as I know some of um, the people in the group are just are leaving behind um, things that are heavy, Lord, and we, we just trust that, that they walk forward and that you will, uh, you will be there for, for their family, Lord, and that they can walk uh, in obedience in this time. Lord, so we just thank you for this opportunity uh, to go and to spread the gospel, Lord, and we, and we thank you for these people who are, who are willing to go. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this trip. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. All right, guys. So um, this week, my challenge to you is to pray for the team. Uh, their names are in the newsletter we sent out uh, yesterday. Pray for the team. Maybe take a meal to fast and pray for them this week. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you guys next time.